Hello everyone, my name is Lauren. And I'm Cooper. And we're the Thrive Initiative. We host meaningful discussions with professionals in the fields of mental health and neuroscience. We hope to spark conversations surrounding mental health, provide teenagers with resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just a quick reminder that the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please check out thriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to take a few minutes to outline intuitive eating before we jump into this episode. As some of you may know, I'm the youngest certified intuitive eating lay facilitator in the world, and this is a topic I'm deeply passionate about. So what is intuitive eating? Intuitive eating is an anti-diet, body positive, and self-compassionate approach to building a healthy relationship with food. Intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework, which integrates instinct, emotion, and rational thought. Intuitive eating is a weight-inclusive, evidence-based model with a validated assessment scale and over 100 studies to date. Through my own process of finding intuitive eating, I have found that the concepts integral to intuitive eating have permeated to most other aspects of my life. It has allowed me to listen carefully to myself and my thoughts, be present, slow down, and find confidence in myself, my body, and my voice. I am so excited to interview our guest today, Elise Resch, the co-author, and as I like to say, mother of intuitive eating. She was my mentor and supervisor when I was becoming the youngest certified intuitive eating lay facilitator, and she is just amazing. So Elise Resch is a nutrition therapist in private practice in Beverly Hills, California, with 39 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She's the co-author of Intuitive Eating, now in its fourth edition. Elise is also the author of The Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens, which I could not recommend anymore. It is amazing. The Intuitive Eating Journal, which is coming out in 2021. Elise is nationally known for her work in helping patients break free from diet culture through the intuitive eating process. Her philosophy embraces the goal of developing body positivity with the belief that all bodies deserve dignity and reconnecting with one's internal wisdom about eating. She supervises and trains health professionals, is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor, a fellow of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So my first question for you is, I know you started off your career as an elementary school teacher, and now you are kind of at the head of this huge global movement and life-changing work of intuitive eating. So I just wanted to hear from you, how did you get here and what did that path look like for you? So um, I was an elementary school teacher for about four years straight out of college and I loved it and I loved the kids. And then I had my own child and realized that I didn't want to spend my child energy on kids at school, I wanted to put it onto my son, but I also wanted to have a career. And I, um, I had been in a family that was very orthorexic, very interested in nutrition. And when I was thinking about, well, what else could I do? Someone said to me, and it was actually a friend, well, 
you're so into nutrition, why don't you become a nutritionist? And it sounded like a great idea. So I started applying to graduate school and got in pretty quickly and uh, had this vision, actually, right from the beginning of sitting in an office, talking to people about their eating. I didn't know what direction that would go in, you know, ultimately. However, <laughs> I did my training at a facility uh, that was uh, connected to the university, and it was for developmentally disabled kids. And I was running the feeding clinic there. I worked there after I did my traineeship for being, becoming a registered dietitian, and then worked there for a while and thought when I started my private practice that that would be what I would be doing for my career was helping families with developmentally disabled kids, but I wasn't getting the referrals for that so much. And I, uh, since I'd let every doctor I knew know that I was in private practice, I'd start getting referrals for medical issues, always connected to weight loss, always. And I didn't like that idea at all. I didn't want to do that. I even knew then what a dismal arena that was. My thoughts weren't formed the way they are now, but I just knew intuitively that I didn't want to do that. Uh, however, what was I going to do? So I started helping people. Now this is 38, almost 39 years ago. Different mentality then. I started trying to help people to lose weight the only way I knew, which was what I had learned in graduate school, which was a, a meal plan based on the diabetic exchange system always saying to them, this isn't really a diet, you know, if you want a cookie instead of the apple, you can have the cookie, but it was very externally directed, and I hated it, and some people did very well, because they liked having, you know, this absolute program until they didn't, and they fell off of it, and others just couldn't do it at all, and I felt very helpless. I remember one particular client early on who came in and said, I just can't follow this, and I didn't know what to do, and she was binging, and I didn't know what to do. And it was a very difficult time for a while until the very early 90s, um, some of the non-diet literature started to come out and started reading it. At the same time, I had started therapy, my own personal therapy, and started loving the whole idea of understanding psychologically what goes on with people. So between that and studying psychology and reading these books, I went, wow, this is the answer dieting is the problem. And that is why I couldn't help people. And that was why I was hating my career. And um, there's got to be another way. And so uh, I started writing a book. And I had all these ideas and I put them on the computer and I wrote out chapter headings. And at the same time, my co-author, Evelyn Triboli, um, who is also, we have the same credentials, she was, uh, she lives in another area an hour away. And she, once a week, she would be in um, the area where I was working. And so she was in my office once a week, she used some space in my office. And she had written one book, which was called Eating on the Run, which is kind of funny, because it's the antithesis of intuitive eating. But uh, <laughs> she, uh, one day I ran into her, and uh, she didn't look very happy. And I said, What's wrong, Evelyn? And she said, Oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she doesn't know how to write. And it was like, bam, you know, I had this lightning strike. I said, I'll write it with you because I knew I was so interested in psychology. And as we started talking, she had some of the same ideas, anti, you know, diet idea. Well, it wasn't called anti-diet then, but it was non-diet then. And so we started to work together. And that was in 1993. 
1993, and the first edition came out in 1995. The, uh, the wonderful experience of seeing clients heal from diet mentality, now diet culture, um, was phenomenal. So, and then of course, it just has a life of its own once it gets started. So there's four editions of intuitive eating, there's workbooks, there's a journal coming out next year, a deck of cards coming out next year. It just keeps moving on and on. Yeah, no, and it's amazing to see. I mean, I started intuitive eating two years ago, and even in the past two years, I've really seen it start to pick up a lot of traction with my generation on social media. And it's just really awesome to see your work, you know, show up on my social media every day. And you're promoting it, which is so wonderful. You're getting to your generation uh, through your platform. Um, next, I kind of wanted to jump towards um, a common misconception about intuitive eating that it's just instinct only. Um, and that's just not how our brain is wired. So I wanted you, I know something you talk about is the neocortex, the limbic system and the reptilian complex. So I was wondering if you could break down that common misconception. Well, let me start with how this came about, that um, this dynamic interplay. During the period of time when the third edition was being written, so this would have been back in 2010, 2011, uh, I was looking at a brochure for a conference, an eating disorder conference I was going to. I'm a certified eating disorder RD and supervisor as well. So I like to go to those conferences. And I saw a notice of a talk on intuitive eating. And I kind of sat back and I went, oh, wow, that's interesting. Someone's talking about intuitive eating and it is not I or my co-author. So I contacted this person and he said, um, he wrote me back and he said, Oh, I'm so glad you're going to come to this conference. Yes, I'm doing this great talk on intuitive eating. Please come. You'll, you'll love it or something like that. So flash forward the conference and the night before his talk, I put the flash drive into my computer to look at his slides and I was horrified. I saw that he was going to be saying negative things about intuitive eating, which was such a, you know, gaslighting. <laughs> it was really upsetting. And um, so the morning I went to the talk it was standing room only people were so interested in hearing about intuitive eating and he invited me in and he got me a chair to sit on and he said uh, to the audience oh we have one of the esteemed authors of intuitive eating here and his first slide was a picture of the book which would have been the second edition at that point and of Evelyn and and then he said uh, I looked up the definition of intuition and it's definition is intuition is instinct and we all know that we can't eat by instinct alone uh, so intuitive eating doesn't work was basically what he said it was a very horrifying moment and after the talk I had many people come up to me Elise are you okay and very disturbing so I called uh, and which, ironically, she was going to be on a panel with this guy the next week which she subsequently said was one of the most difficult talks she had done uh, you know what I don't think we have a uh, a really clear definition of intuitive eating. And at the time I had been reading a book by Peter Levine um, who was talking about the different parts of the brain. And it just was this light bulb again for me, which was uh, intuitive eating takes all three aspects of brain development to, to become an intuitive eater. So you've already mentioned the three. So the reptilian part of the brain is the instinctual part, the dinosaurs only had the instinct to survive. They didn't feel, they didn't think. And then mammals, 
develop the mammalian brain or the limbic brain, which is the seat of emotions and social behaviors. Anybody who has that, as you do, um, know that they have feelings. And uh, then ultimately what differentiates us as humans is the neocortex, as you mentioned, or the, the cognitive part of the brain. So intuitive eating takes in all three parts. We need to be aware of our instincts for hunger, for fullness, what tastes good. We also need to be aware that emotions can sometimes interfere with our instincts. Very high anxiety might release um, you know, adrenaline, which will take away an appetite. So we need to use the neocortex to make some rational decisions, taking the emotions and the instincts into consideration. Sometimes emotions pull us away from our you know, just simply pull us away from hunger, fullness, wanting to eat to comfort ourselves to a level that we feel physically uncomfortable. We use the part of the brain to, to be kind and compassionate toward ourselves and know that um, food can be comforting and also at the same time know that we want to feel physically good. So your definition of intuitive eating is the dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. I mean, I'm the kind of person who kind of loses my hunger, fullness cues during these really high anxiety periods of time. And I have to, you know, use as an intuitive eater, I use my cognition to say like, hey, I'm going through a big week where I need to use my brain. Like let's fuel ourselves, even though I can't really feel it right now because I'm stressed out. And I think that's a big piece of intuitive eating that it's not just instinct. You've got the emotions and you've got the thinking. Well, correct. And so um, rather than saying, well, I have no hunger, I just won't eat. You were able Say, my body needs to be nourished, my brain needs to be nourished, mm-hmm. even though I don't have hunger, I need to eat. And yeah, and it's a form of self care, I think. Absolutely. The whole actually, all of intuitive eating is self care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I want to talk about, we're kind of in a little bit of a neuroscience section, so I'll keep going with this. Um, so, one other common misconception I hear about intuitive eating is oh, if I were to be an intuitive eater, I'd eat. X food and nothing else. Um, And that's not going to work for me. So I wanted you to talk about habituation because that was something that I experienced for really the first time when I kind of let go of diet culture. Um, And I think it's something people don't even realize would happen if they became an intuitive eater. Okay. This is so important. And I get that all the time, you know, no, I can never do that. All I'd ever eat is, you know, half fudge Sundays or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So the definition of habituation is the greater the uh, stimulus, the lesser the response, the less the response, meaning the more you have of something, the less excited you are about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem with diet culture is there's so many rules about good food, bad food, So when someone is still tied up in diet culture versus being an intuitive eater and they think, oh, if you let me eat whatever I want, I'll never stop. It's kind of true because they're thinking at the same time, well, I'm not going to allow myself to have that food. After I do this experiment, I'll go back to whatever diet I've been on. They can't get that point of habituation because there's a forbiddenness in the future. But having totally embraced intuitive eating and knowing that all foods are what I like to say, emotionally equivalent, that you feel the same way about whether you eat broccoli or, you know, jelly beans or whatever it is, you don't, uh, you don't feel good or bad about yourself. And you know, you will always, always give yourself permission to eat what you want, assuming you have food security and you can get that food. So that's the piece. But um, 
once that happens, after a few days of the same, you know, food, it's like, oh, yeah, it's good, but you're not so excited. And after a while, it's give me something else. I don't just want that hot fudge sundae. Give me a salad. Yeah. So habituation is really the key to um, calming any fears about um, making peace with food and allowing yourself to eat whatever you want. And it's so phenomenal. I see it over and over with every client who actually does embrace intuitive eating and doesn't hold a diet in their back pocket in case intuitive doesn't work, so to speak, um, that eventually, you know, they eat what they want. They enjoy it. They don't feel out of control with it. Now, talking about your neuroscience that you brought up just a moment ago, if you're not fed well, like on the days that you're too anxious, if you don't feed yourself, the survival part, the instinctual part of the brain registers red alert, red alert, we're in danger, and releases uh, neurotransmitters that send you neuropeptides that send you to eat as much as you can to seek as much food and especially carbohydrate because that's what the brain works on. Um, so in order to be able to, you know, meet a habituation also, you have to feed yourself throughout the day so that you're not in that place where your brain chemicals are taking over and you can't really experience that psychological phenomenon of habituation. Yeah. Two things to add. I will say, my own personal experience with habituation is, you know, when I first started intuitive eating, it was like, oh my goodness, I can have ice cream and it's just so exciting. And wow, I'm never going to stop wanting to eat it. And now that I've kind of, you know, habituated, it's like, yeah, I can have ice cream when I want it. And, you know, it does lose its like pedestal and this excitement, but, you know, it's helped me heal my relationship with food. And then the second thing I think is oftentimes diet culture I mean, when you're entrenched with diet culture, you don't realize how powerful your body is. Like if you're underfed, like your body is going to fight you on that. And, you know, as you said, send neural signals to get you to seek out carbohydrates to ref refuel yourself. Your brain is powerful and it's going to help you survive. Um, and now I just wanted to talk about, you know, becoming an intuitive eater and especially as a teenager, the first thing I wanted to do was talk about a lot of the fears surrounding intuitive eating. And, you know, I think probably the biggest step to becoming is an intuitive eater is committing to never dieting again. And then I think that's when you can fully surrender to that. And I remember when I started intuitive eating, it was a process. Like I discovered it in, you know, I think it was April, two years ago, April, 2019. So a year and a half ago. Um, and it took me until July to really commit to like, I'm ready to do this. So could you just talk about, you know, the importance of, you know, committing to it? Um, and I will say, um, you know, intuitive eating and its principles, while, you know, it's solely focused on, you know, food and exercise at its core, it is really spread all throughout my life. This, you know, sense of, you know, capability and confidence in myself and trust in myself. And I want to talk about, you know, teenagers' needs for individuation and how that ties into intuitive eating. Ah, I love it. One of my favorite topics. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to go back to toddlerhood, actually. Um, when a baby is about a year and a half old and starts to realize that it can walk, that it can start to say some words, that if it walks out of the, if this baby walks out of the room, it can come back and see, you know, mommy or daddy the drive at that age is to be independent, even though they're 
clearly not fully independent, but they're no longer completely attached. They're able to be their own person. And when they're told what to do, their immediate reaction is no. It's the favorite word of a toddler is to say no. And it's not that they're being, you know, uh, terrible kids. You often hear of the terrible twos. It's not in fact, they're really healthy kids because they're wanting to assert their autonomy. Well, that little toddler lives in us all of our lives and it gets really activated in teen years because teen, we're working toward individuation, toward asserting autonomy, toward being our own person. And so the beauty of intuitive eating in many, well, there's many beauties, but one of the intuitive eating is that it's an internal process. It's about starting to trust, as you just said, that your body has wisdom, that, that it's going to uh, instinctually give you signals. It's going to, you know, your emotions and your thought processes are your own. You know, they don't have to be attached to someone else. And so if a teenager goes on a diet, ultimately, there are rules on diets. Ultimately, a teenager wants to say no to those rules, like the toddler says no to being told what to do, you know, ever been around a little kid who's exhausted eyes are drooping and you know mommy says it's time to go to bed no no I don't go to bed. well you know the same thing with a teen and actually regardless of what your age nobody likes to be told what to do so intuitive eating doesn't tell you what to do it helps you tune into yourself so there's nothing to rebel against because it's your own unless your inner voice is a diet voice and you've interjected dieting but if you're really listening to all that wisdom, all those signals your body is giving you, there's nothing to rebel against. It's really, you know, liberating to become an intuitive eater because you're, you know, you're the boss of your own self when you're an intuitive eater and that's super empowering. Yes. How many teenagers are the boss of themselves? They still have curfews. They still have exams. They have to, you know, uh, study for, they still have rules. They Intuitive eating has no rules. So it's the one area in their lives that sometimes is the only place that they have full agency over. The next thing I wanted to talk about, I think we've talked about this a little before, is judgment for being an intuitive eater. And for some reason, um, I think just given how rooted diet culture is in our society, it's seen as a radical decision. And I just wanted to talk about that. Um, How to deal with judgment um, from other people and how to set boundaries. Well, you know, it's interesting. People are um, attached to their oppressors sometimes. They want to justify um, their being in diet culture, which is this oppression, because they're so terrified, really, to start to trust mm-hmm. themselves. So it's very threatening when they're so committed to their diet, so committed to changing their weight and size to be acceptable, to hear someone who says, no, you know, go against that, be anti-diet, listen to yourself. It's a threatening feeling for someone. So they're going to then, who's someone who is too scared to let go of what they're doing. And so they are going to judge you for doing that. Eventually they'll come around when they realize how unhappy they are continuing to do what they're doing. And also this point you made about habituation earlier, they're so terrified that if they let themselves eat what they want, their bodies are just going to not stop growing. And part of their um, brainwashing is that they're supposed to be at this tiny, tiny, small size and intuitive eating um, just puts you wherever you're meant to be and doesn't promote, you know, being at this tiniest size. So um, 
Yeah, so I can understand why they might say, what are you doing? This is my, my way is the right way because they're defending something that gives them this false sense of control. They think it's a sense of control, but it's a false sense of control because it never works out. Yeah, and I, I know on your website, you have a section about words of wisdom. And one of them is that there's not much in our life that's really in our control, if anything. And I think diet culture really plays on that, like gets us to think, you have all this control over your body and your body shape when really it's not. And they just, they're trying to make money off of you, which was something crazy to think about. Like they make money off of your insecurities. They need you to be insecure to survive. Right. And they need you to be insecure. And they also need you to have magical thinking that you are able, if you do the right thing, eat the right foods, the right amount of foods, you're going to be able to change your DNA. I mean, you know, genetically, we are programmed to be a certain height, we are programmed to have a certain eye color, we're programmed to have a certain size feet, we're programmed to be a certain weight that's a set point weight, which changes throughout a lifetime, you know, depending on the phase of life you're in. However, diet culture tells you you can change all that, you can go against nature, it never works out. Yeah, it's, it's like what we talked about earlier, where if you're restricting your body and your biology, they're going to fight back against you and try and get you to refuel yourself. And actually do damage if it goes on for too long. You ultimately um, affect your levels of uh, leptin, which is your fullness hormone. Years of dieting can uh, reduce your fullness hormone so you don't get full as soon. Metabolism can change over a lifetime of yo-yo dieting, going up and down in weight. Um, damage uh, yo-yo dieting, by the way, weight fluctuations that are a result of that because people inevitably fall off the diets and so whatever they've lost, they regain and more. Uh, inevitably, that's going to have uh, give you a higher risk of heart disease and diabetes. I just wanted to say, this is kind of a general overarching question. So I know you wrote a intuitive eating workbook for teens and I just wanted to ask you in general, what advice would you have for teen listeners on, you know, how to get started with intuitive eating? Okay. So I think the first piece is really looking at the pros and cons of their diet mentality of the diet they've been on to really question. And I do have exercises throughout that workbook that help people get into this. What are the feelings you had when you were on the last diet? What are the feelings you had when you fell off of it? you know, evaluating how much damage, mental and emotional damage has been done by dieting and looking at whether they are open to be motivated to have a different way of eating. And the, we always need something to motivate ourselves. And for me, it's the satisfaction factor of intuitive eating. And that's why I made it the second chapter in that book and took it out of line, as I said, because I think for most people, if you ask them if they want more satisfaction, they're going to say, well, yeah, sure. I say most people. There's some people with severe illnesses that can't imagine satisfaction, especially eating disorder illnesses. So um, if one is seeking satisfaction, you're going to be able to um, look at the other principles of intuitive eating in a much easier way. So I would tell a teenager, just ask yourself, how satisfying is a meal if you aren't hungry? How satisfying is a meal if you haven't eaten all day and you're so ravenous that you don't even taste the food because you're putting it in so fast? How satisfying is your meal if you're in a fight with your parents? 
you establish a way of eating that gives you some peace so that you can enjoy your meal. Uh, how satisfying is your meal if you have feelings or thoughts of good and bad food? So that helps you make peace with food. Satisfaction goes with um, respecting your body. I mean, if you're being down on your body and making you know, judgments about your body and negative comments, when you're sitting down and eating, you really can't be satisfied because you're feeling bad about your body and you're feeling bad about your food. And it goes through all the principles of intuitive eating. So my advice to a teenager is to first do a little pro-con list about what diets have done for you because they do give you this false sense of control and it is false, you know, operative word. And then look at what's taken away from you and come to that place where you autonomously decide that you don't want to live your life like that anymore. Nobody can push intuitive eating on anyone, especially a teenager. So um, this piece of autonomy that's so important, really make that decision for yourself as to whether you want to live a more peaceful, happy, satisfying life. And if you do, and as you said, Cooper, it extends to so many other aspects of your life. Intuitive eating really helps you tune into your needs in many ways and expressing yourself in many ways. Ask yourself, does that sound good to you? Do you want the freedom that comes with trusting your body's signals? And if you do, then you're going to be much more apt to embrace intuitive eating. Yeah, and I will say it's a really incredible feeling that I have that I know I'm not going to be fighting this battle with diet culture for the rest of my life. I'm 17 years old with hopefully a long life ahead of me and diet culture is just not something that's going to be taking up mental space anymore. And you know, you're saying that is so important because I see people of all ages and it breaks my heart to see older people who have spent so many years of their lives and mostly women, not, but it's all genders, but so many people who think they're not good enough unless they lose weight. They're still trying to lose weight. I've known of, I've heard of 80 year old grandparents who are all they can talk about is, Oh my God, goodness, I shouldn't have eaten that. I'll be good tomorrow. And it's heartbreaking to me. It, it does take you away from all the other beautiful parts of life. And one of my favorite quotes from Christy Harrison's anti-diet was that a lot of people, you know, who diet for a long time, they actually rob themselves of their potential. And if they become, you know, intuitive eaters later in life, they realize like, oh my gosh, if only I had found this sooner. And I think as a teenager and a certified intuitive eating life facilitator, that's something I hope to bring to teenagers is this, you know, this amazing framework and this opportunity to break up a diet culture. And I don't know if you've told your audience, Cooper, that you are the youngest intuitive eating, certified intuitive eating counselor. I mean, it's pretty amazing for intuitive eating lay facilitator. You're not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lay facilitator for now. Yes. Um, and the last thing I wanted to talk about, because this is something I've dealt with personally, is there's no such thing as a perfect intuitive eater. There's no right or wrong way to intuitive eat. And I just was wondering if you could expand on that idea. Well, see, intuitive eating is the antithesis of perfection. Intuitive eating is embracing imperfection. It's embracing change. Every day is different. Every day your hunger and your fullness is going to be different. Every day what appeals to you to eat is going to be different. Um, so, if you're pursuing perfection, which is what diets put out for you, you have to stay on that diet perfectly. Um, it's going to only lead you to unhappiness because you can't achieve, we cannot, no one can achieve perfection. 
So um, intuitive eating is such so liberating because it takes you away from feeling bad about yourself if you're not doing something the exact way that it's prescribed. Do you have any final parting words you have for the teenagers listening? Well, what I'm discovering in some of the teens that I know now, they're so much more open-minded than I was when I was a teenager years ago. Not that they're open-minded, but they're so interested in changing the world and making it a better place. So if that is something that for you as a teenager, becoming an intuitive eater and promoting intuitive eating, not necessarily that you have to become a counselor, but um, just living your life that way is actually part of changing this world because, um, you know, diet, dieting, diet culture is so toxic and debilitating and uh, damaging that uh, pursuing intuitive eating is going to make you feel like you're doing something really important in life in this world. And as you said, Cooper, opening your life to the things you really want to do rather than spending all of your time trying to figure out what you should eat, how bad you are for not eating something or for eating something else. It's a, it's a, it just gives you so much freedom. So that's what I would say to you. And enjoy it. It's fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I, I always love talking to you. And, you know, to me, you're the mother of intuitive eating, and I look up to you so much, as you know. And I look up to you, Cooper, so much for who you are. I mean, it's such a delight to know you. You too. The same goes for you. Thank you for inviting me in and giving me the opportunity to spread the word so that more and more people can have the joy of eating and satisfaction that this offers. So thank you. With love, The Thrive Initiative. Thrive.